the first year we were serving thousands of customers um, and we had become a seven-figure company within our first year of business. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why you should talk to your potential competitors early on, how to market to customers via text message, and why they acquired a competitor within their first year of business. Today, I'm joined by Spencer Donaldson from Eat Will Nashville. Eat Well Nashville delivers deliciously healthy, ready-to-eat meals straight to your home or office. It was started in 2016 and based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Spencer. Hey, Felix. How are you? Great. So tell us about the idea behind this product, this business, because it all started with your partner wanting to improve your diet. So talk to us about how that started a business. Yeah, basically, I mean, we've we've both been entrepreneurs our whole lives and kind of, you know, just were busy all the time and not able to eat healthy. And we felt that it was kind of unfair that on every single corner you have a fast food restaurant, yet you don't have an easy option to eat healthy conveniently. So here in Nashville, when we launched, there was really no one that offered what we wanted. We tried every service. We tried all the national services. Uh, we tried CSAs and we tried Blue Apron and nothing was quite convenient enough and nothing quite resonated with us in terms of product quality and how natural the ingredients were. So we were looking for something that was very healthy, that had all clean ingredients um, that we could eat very easily and just pop in the microwave or pop in the oven quickly and eat it. Got it. So what, what, what were your backgrounds? How did you guys get into into basically the food business? Uh, I mean, really, so our backgrounds are in technology marketing. So me and my business partner now, we started a company called Technology Advice several years ago, which is a B2B marketing firm for technology companies, um, and grew that pretty quickly into an Inc. 5000 company, um, and really just started a bunch of companies out of that kind of little branch, and developed a bunch of different ideas and learned how to start companies, essentially. So basically, we start a lot of different companies around our own personal needs, um, somewhat selfishly. But, uh, you know, we just we just wanted to solve that problem of eating healthy. So we had no food background at all. We just really wanted to um, drive health and wellness because we weren't seeing it for ourselves. We were so busy and tied up with building companies that we didn't have time to eat healthy or take care of our our own wellness. So we uh, we pushed forward with the idea and kind of launched just to friends and family to see how it would go out of a small commissary kitchen. Um, and very quickly, we realized it was going to take off because we thought we'd only start with, you know, 30, 40 customers. And we had close to 100 customers within the first month. And we had only told friends and family. So we knew we had something then and decided to scale it even more and make it something that would really resonate with the community and and kind of drive that wellness all over Nashville. Mm. So given that you have this experience starting companies, when you when you are starting a new business, what do you what do you think should be a number one focus that, that you guys try to do and then also that you recommend other entrepreneurs focus on when you are in the very early stages of starting a business? So one thing that I did that you know, I, I see as a major problem with other entrepreneurs is they don't do enough research up front. Um, there's a lot of people in our space uh, in very similar businesses that have failed. 
Um, you know, and I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot about those companies. So what I did was just reach out to the founders of the companies that failed and some of the companies that were succeeding in the space to see exactly what they recommended doing and what they recommended us staying away from. And we learned a lot from that. Not only that, we flew to other markets to see what other companies were doing in the food delivery space um, to figure out what was working and what we liked and what we didn't like. Oh, so, so you were you were going out asking successful, unsuccessful, potentially competitors in your space. Like they were receptive to having this conversation with you. Yeah, especially. I mean, the people who failed definitely. Um, <laughs> it was a lot easier that way. But more or less talking to the other companies that were successful, a lot of it was just secret shopping. You know, it was going to those places, trying their meals, trying their services, and seeing how they worked. And then figuring out what would work for us in our market and what was similar in their market, and then bringing that here to Nashville. Got it. Okay, so when you were doing this kind of secret shopping and you were doing your, your research, like what kind of questions did you want to have answered? I mean, we were asking all kinds of questions about the scale of the business. You know, we we wanted to view as much of the operation, so we would ask some folks if we could, you know, check out the kitchen, and a lot of them would allow us to tour their kitchen and see how the operations worked. And that helped us tremendously because we had no clue really where to start on the operational side um, because we were were hiring chefs here in Nashville that were coming out of high-volume kitchens like hotels and things like that, but they had never done meal prep at all. So we were kind of starting from the ground up. So by doing that, we were able to gain a lot of knowledge and kind of grow the business based on the anecdotes we got from those those visits. Got it. When did you know that you gained enough research to start putting in more of an investment, whether that be time or capital, into starting the business? Um, I think looking at the other markets, we saw that there were some key players in in other similar markets like Austin and Dallas and Chicago that we felt like, okay, these guys are really crushing it in those markets. So Nashville is definitely ripe for it, especially with the rate of growth that we have in the city here. So we're like, you know, let's hit the ground running and at least do a test out of a commissary kitchen, see how that goes, and then move forward into building out our own facility. Got it. So when you don't have a background in industry, you mentioned the secret shopping with potential competitors or in completely different markets. What else can you be doing to get up to speed when you want to start a business in, a, in an industry, maybe because of your, your own need for yourself or you see a market opportunity, but you just have zero, like literally no no experience whatsoever? I mean, the two keys to it really are just reading as much information as you can about what's happening happening in any given industry. And then also networking is the biggest part. You know, I've been in Nashville now for 10 years and I've been able to develop a network that's very open. And I think the market you're in has to be an open market. And that's the great thing about Nashville is everyone's very open to sharing ideas um, and to driving success within the community. God. Okay, so you mentioned that once you were ready to start taking these kind of baby steps towards starting the business, you started with just friends and family out of a commissary kitchen. What was your between you and your and your and your, your business partner? Like, what what were you guys thinking would be possible? Like, what did you see? What was the vision at that early stage before things kind of blew up? Um, I mean, really, we saw it as just being in Nashville um, and kind of focusing on the fitness and health community. And this is one of the biggest mistakes we made early on is that we thought everyone was going to want, you know, 
uh, brown rice and plain chicken that had very little flavor. And we realized really quickly that that wasn't the need. First off, the food and the product has to be amazing. It has to be flavorful. So the number one thing about the product is you have to have something that folks want to eat, whether it's healthy or not. So when we started, we got the fitness crowd interested in the business. And then we realized there was a much greater market with busy executives um, and just other people who had families and not much time that didn't necessarily want it to be plain. So we had to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to make healthy recipes that tasted amazing. Mm. So rather than kind of just sticking with that original hypothesis that they were just fitness focused and at the sacrifice of taste, and then now you recognize that taste mattered maybe even more so than, than the health aspect, What made you decide to do that kind of pivot rather than just moving forward with your original hypothesis, your original idea of keeping it focused, almost hyper-focused on healthy over-taste? I think the biggest thing was just the feedback we were getting from our customers. So we're pretty relentless about surveying our customers and figuring out where they want to be, what they want. So for us, we realized from those surveys that, hey, the people who are ordering are not necessarily just people in the fitness industry or people who do CrossFit. These are, you know, mothers who have, you know, uh, single mothers who have two, three kids. Um, These are CEOs of major companies in Nashville, and they're asking us for these other things. So there's a much bigger market. And from those surveys, we realized the customers that were trying our food were not necessarily just the fitness people. And once that data was overwhelming, that they were not the only ones, the fitness crowd, that's when we really quickly decided to make a little bit of a pivot to where we were providing healthy natural options, um, but increasing the flavor, increasing the spice content and things like that. Got it. So this goes back to your earlier point about how you have to focus a lot on research. Even when the company is quote unquote up and running, there's still a lot of research and learning that goes on throughout. So when you are conducting these surveys with your customers, can you tell us a little bit about like what are some of the most important questions that, that you guys ask or that you recommend other entrepreneurs ask their customers to, to learn more about who is actually their, their customer? Yeah. I mean, it really, it's all, all relative to the product that you're selling. But for us, it's all about, you know, product quality, product consistency. The other thing too that we we ask our customers is how they want to be marketed to. And I think a lot of companies forget to ask that question. Um, so what we're trying to do based on that, the information that we've received from those surveys regarding marketing is tailor our marketing program to the customer in general. But so we're seeing a lot more people who are answering those questions saying, hey, we'd love to be marketed to this way. So We had a lot of people ask for text message marketing, for instance, because they were forgetting to order by Friday, which is our order cutoff day. Um, So they couldn't get their meals. So people were asking for text. People had asked, hey, can you do push notifications? Things like that. But this is all data that was gleaned from our surveys. um, And we were seeing that early on. And, uh, you know, you just have to ask those questions and see what the pain points of the customers are. And when you're a community-based company that's focusing on a local market, it's a lot easier to get customers who are willing to share that information because they want you to be better and they want you to be around for a long time. 
So is the question like literally how do you want to be marketed to, or is there like a different way that you're asking it to to understand what is the the channel that you are marketing to them? Yeah, so we're asking them basically we'll do a, a drop down or radio button asking them how they want to be marketed to and list a bunch of different options. And then we're all also asking them regarding frequency, um, how often they want to be marketed to. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned that the questions you ask in a survey depends on the industry. Now, when you sat down to create these, the questions you came up with, how do you know what questions to ask? Like what, what, what is the, the end goal, I guess, of asking the, the, these questions in surveys? Like where do you begin to do the research on what are the important questions to ask for your industry? Yeah, I mean, honestly, you can you can look online. There's a lot of different resources if you research uh, common customer surveys, which will give you a good basis. But for us, it the number one thing about what we do is product. So we're relentless when it comes to product quality, product consistency. And so a majority of the focus is around our product, how consistent it is, the quality of the product, what sides they like, what they don't like about different sides, what they don't like about proteins. And that all came from just eating our own food and realizing, okay, everything has to be on point because our customers are eating this food on average seven meals a week, um, every week, every other week. So we need to be very consistent, especially when they're reordering the same meals. So for us, being our own customers and eating our own food, we realized that that needed to be the focus. Got it. Okay, so you mentioned how this blew up much faster than you guys had expected. How much did it blow up within that, that first month? Like how many customers were you getting within the first 30 days? Yeah, we had over 100 customers in the first 30 days. So, yeah, about double what we thought. Um, and then, you know, the first year it grew rap very rapidly. We actually acquired uh, a competitor in our first year of business, which then increased the size of the company. Uh, pretty quickly because we acquired their customer base as well. Um, so, you know, the first year we were serving thousands of customers um, and we had become a seven-figure company within our first year of business. That's amazing. What do you think happened that allowed you to blow up so so quickly? Like, what was it that you guys felt like you were doing right that allowed you to gain so much speed? It really, it comes down to that you know, being conscious of the product and putting out an amazing product and focusing it and eating the food ourselves. Um, word of mouth has by far been our number one marketing channel. Um, and it's just because the food is good. If you focus on your product and you've got an amazing product, your customers want to share that information. They want to refer other customers to your business. Um, so that by far was one of the biggest things. And then the other aspect was just the, the B2B model um, that we learned from building out technology advice um, allowed us to like go into businesses and pitch not just to one customer, but pitch to entire companies, um, which really allowed us to scale the business very quickly because uh, companies want their employees to eat better. So this was one way for us where we would go in to a company and kind of introduce them to the product and let them know what we were doing, do a lunch and learn, maybe give them some snacks uh, or some sample meals to try. And that really helped tremendously. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that uh, the focus on the product, it was vital to your, your success. It led to a lot of these referrals from, from uh, through word of mouth. How do you get the customers to try it out 
for the first time. You know, they might hear from from a, a friend about how great the product is, but there still might be some hesitation about buying food right online. I think that's still pretty early stages. So, how do you get customers to trust in, in your brand and to buy for the first time? Um, I mean, there's a couple ways to do it. I mean, we're discounting uh, for first time buyers, which helps. Um, you know, very typically a 10 to 15% discount is what we would offer to get someone to come in to purchase. But also I highly recommend for any entrepreneur with an e-commerce program using some sort of uh, reward points program or referral program. We use smile.io. They've been great for us. Um, but that will allow customers to refer and the new customer gets a discount on the order, which helps tremendously. God, how, how's that configured for you guys? Like, what's worked for as an incentive for the rewards program to get existing customers to to spread the word? So typically, um, every so they're getting two percent of the order value in points, and then it's basically like a thousand points um, gets you ten dollars off. So since our customers are coming back frequently they're getting access to that. And typically for like the new customers that are being referred, they get uh, $10 off their first order. Got it. So win-win for both sides. That's awesome. Now, when it comes to this B2B model, when did you recognize that this was an opportunity? Was it something you went after right away? Or when did you start looking to sell into companies? We knew right away just because of our background in B2B marketing and sales that it's easier to sell to 500 people versus selling to all of those people individually. Um, so that was something we knew was going to be an opportunity up front. And that was one of the first things that we, we knew we were going to do is just go in and promote this with companies, especially a lot more companies having wellness programs and things like that. It's made it easier for us to become a thought leader in the space and kind of drive wellness within the companies, not just with food, but with information. So, you know, we're constantly bringing our partners along. So like we might partner with a gym and have them come teach the company about fitness and we'll teach them about nutrition. Mm. So if for anyone out there that is, that sees that they have a product that might fit into the B2B space where they could sell to a whole company and a bunch of customers underneath that company, is it is it is it might seem daunting. So is it easier than people might think, or or hard to sell into a company, sell your product in a B two B model? Um, I think you know it's it's fairly easy if you've got a great product. Like I said, for us, you know, we can take ten meals to a wellness manager at a company and drop them off and just say, try them out, see what you think, and they'll come back to us and love the product. So we get that meeting, we get that lunch and learn because we're not asking them to pay for this. We're doing this all for free. So for them, there's no real cost to it other than just promoting wellness within the company, which most companies have directives that are pushing them to do that anyways. Okay, got it. So to get these meetings, you were just dropping off these free samples for the, the decision maker at these companies? Exactly. That's correct. Got it. What were some of the most common objections that you got from from companies, whether it, whether they gave them to you when you were trying to come in to do like a lunch and learn or to enroll in your actual program? Like, what were some common objections that you hear from businesses? The only real objection that we ever got and that we get sometimes is that they have someone that already cooks for them. So essentially, 
a lot of companies will have their own cafeteria and they can't do deals with outside vendors for food. So that's one of the main things that we've seen. Other than that, most companies are willing to offer a discount on our product and to market market it to the company because there's no cost to that for them. Got it. Okay, so I want to talk a little about the, the acquisition you mentioned. So you guys acquired a competitor. What made you decide to take this step? You mentioned you did this within that first year too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, you know, it was just an opportunity that came up. Um, this company came to us um, and they were struggling financially, but they had a great customer base um, in the fitness space. So, you know, we thought, hey, we can capitalize on their customers. They've got a decent retention rate. Um, they've got customers coming back. The other thing was just the knowledge from that company. Uh, they had been doing it for, you know, two, two three years ahead of us. Um, so we actually brought in one of their founders as our COO and took that knowledge and used that to grow Eat Well. Got it. So what, what did you see about, I guess, your, your, your experience, your, the infrastructure that you had set up for your current business that said that, you know, we have what it takes to, to basically absorb this, this, this competitor and, and turn things around? You know, for us, you have to look at look at every deal on a deal by deal basis, and basically, we crunched the numbers how we needed it to be to make it a successful deal for us. Um, and essentially, that company was looking to get out of the business anyways, so it ended up being a good deal just for the customer acquisition aspect of it, and then bringing in their their talent um, in terms of kitchen help and bringing in our COO really helped. Um, and that was just added on top to all of the customers that we brought in. Mm. So when you do integrate a company that you acquire, what, what's involved? What are the challenges that you face when you are integrating a, another company into yours? Uh, I mean, there's <laughs> there's so many challenges to it. And that was one of the things. It was probably the hardest week of business um, because they were on a quick timeline. We were on a quick timeline to get the deal done. Um, and basically, we brought them into our kitchen and ran both processes side by side for two weeks and figured out the weaknesses in their process, but also where we could improve, which helped us in the transition. But the biggest thing is the expectations of the customers um, may be different. So you have to realign on the marketing side and on the communication side. You have to realign uh, thoughts on the product in general. So, um, you know, they were expecting one type of product, more of the fitness related product. Um, and we were focused again, more on flavor, less just plain chicken and brown rice. Um, so for us, we had to like re-educate them on the fact that food can have spice and it can have flavor and still be healthy. It's not like you just have to eat plain chicken and brown rice every day, every meal. So we uh, we had to realign those expectations, and that was difficult for a while. We did lose some of the customers that we brought on, but kept a majority of them. So it ended up working out well. But yeah, running the two processes side by side, uh, there were a lot of working parts, You know, two different ordering processes, two different uh, teams working on each thing side by side, two different delivery processes. Um, so running those side by side was very hectic and it was working a lot of hours for everyone 
in the company in those two weeks. Got it. Now I'll talk a little bit about the logistics of all of this. So when you are, because you're you're basically creating lots of new products and lots of new menu items pretty frequently. So what is the the I guess product development process to build out the menus and make sure you're always staying kind of fresh, essentially, with your products? Yeah. So basically, whereas most restaurants and other companies that do what we do, they they start with the kitchen. So they let the kitchen come up with all of the ideas around products. But we do it where our uh, marketing and customer service teams look at the information of those surveys that we spoke about. And then they distill that into ideas. And then they give that to the chefs. And then the chefs come up with all the other menu items and options. And we'll come up with uh, tasting menus for us all to try within the company. And that's how we're adding things to the menu. That's that sounds like a pretty um, I guess involved process. How long ahead of time do you need to to be to be basically doing all of this before it actually hits the shelves, ready for customers to purchase? Early on, it took forever. You know, it took a month, two months, whatever, to get the products ready. But now we have such a database. I mean, we have you know over a thousand different menu options in our database with all of the nutritional information, all the ingredient information lined up. So now we can bring in some old top sellers for us. So it makes it easier to where, you know, we might be on a two week turnaround versus a one month turnaround on those menu items. Got it. Now you, you, you mentioned that you work with local farms as well to source the, the, uh, the ingredients. As much as we can, it's, we're at a scale now that it's been difficult for us to obtain enough product from local farms. So we're working with regional distributors for the most part, and we work with some local farms as well. Got it. Now, what about the the delivery aspect? Because this is like, you know, you're obviously have to ship out a lot of products and these are products that are are perishable. How do you handle delivery of of the the food products? Um, So basically it operates very much similar to like a Postmates or Uber Eats model where the drivers are coming in Um, and picking up a certain amount of bags and then dropping those off at customers' houses. And we have routing software um, and a way to track all of the deliveries so we make sure everyone's delivering to the right homes and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's a very complex process, um, especially on the weekend. That's when a majority of our work happens at EatWell because our order cutoff is Friday for delivery on Sunday or Monday. Um, so it gets very involved late Friday into Saturday and Sunday when we're getting everything ready for delivery. So, I mean, we're delivering everything in cooler bags with ice packs to keep the food nice and cold. Um, but that's all a process, bringing in the ice packs, bringing in enough bags, getting the bags out, scheduling the drivers. That's all something that we're managing, uh, within our company. So, for us, that adds basically another aspect to the business. But luckily, we've got a pretty good system locked in now. Uh, originally, you know, we'd have issues where drivers would drop the bags at the wrong houses and things like that. And we haven't had that as of recent because of our delivery tracking, our delivery software, and the way we manage our drivers. 
Mm. And yeah, you mentioned as well that regarding this this uh, this this weekly cutoff is that you also have a system of multiple touch points throughout the week to to get these reminders to do the marketing that you mentioned earlier instead of relying on the subscription models. Tell us about this. Like, what is uh, what is the, these these or what are these multiple touch points throughout the week that is that that allows you to not rely on a subscription model for your business? Um, so, I mean, our biggest things are just uh, email marketing and engaging in some sort of drip process. I definitely recommend for any business uh, where basically anyone who hasn't ordered is getting a reminder to order into later in the week because most people are procrastinators. Uh, so what we're finding is, you know, most of our orders are coming in on the last day that we allow orders. So for us, we have to stay on top of them. So that comes down to email, drip marketing. And then we have this really cool tool called Emotive that we're using now, which allows you to drip market via text, um, which we're seeing some great results with. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Very cool. So I definitely want to talk about how you're doing this through through text, uh, but for for email specifically, what what are you sending them? Like you're emailing them like every day. Like what is the frequency that that seems to work for your business? Um, so we're sending them roughly um, about five emails a week right now, and you know, but the thing is, if you've ordered early in the week, you're not going to get all that communication. So in the beginning of the week, we're introducing them to our new product items. Um, showing them customer testimonials, introducing them to our new uh, gym partners that we might be cross-promoting with, um, that kind of thing. And and then by the end of the week, it's more like a timer countdown. Hey, it's time to get your order in. Uh, we're getting close to the deadline. And then same thing via text. It's It's introducing them to the product and then telling them that the timeline is getting closer and driving that sense of urgency in the ordering process. Got it. Now, is there like um, a, a template that you follow for, for these emails? Because, you know, five emails a week, every week can be potentially be a full-time job for someone to create this kind of content. Like, How do you systematize the content that you're sending out over email and text? Yeah, we have it all templated out and we set it up ahead of time. But, I mean, it is a full-time job for our marketing and community coordinator. Um, and he's he's doing a great job with it, cre- coming up with creative content, cross promotions with other brands. But it is, you know, it it's tedious. It's a lot of work, but you can template it out so it's similar. Um, you just want to make sure you're adding value via whatever communication channel you're using, whether it's text or it's email, you know, make sure that you've got some value to add, whether it's a discount or, hey, check out these new items that you haven't seen before. So uh, I think that's the biggest thing um, there. And then the other channel that we're utilizing is push notifications uh, via web browsers. And that seems to be working pretty well for us. Um, And so basically, you know, if you haven't ordered until the end of the week, you might get... uh, 10 messages from us. But what we're working on right now is allowing our customers to pick and choose how we're marketing to them. That way it's not intrusive. If they don't want to receive a text, we're letting them opt out of that. And then also asking them, hey, do you still want to be communicated with via text? Uh, 
via email, via push notifications to make sure that we're not intruding on them. Got it. Now, you are you mentioned using this tool called Emotive to, to trip market via text. Are there any limitations or I guess what are the limitations that, that you're presented with via text compared to like email? Um, I mean, it's actually, there's not as many limitations as you would think. I mean, it's just getting the opt-ins um, for text. And so like, if you go to our website, you'll get a pop-up that says, hey, would you like to receive a 10% discount? Opt into our text list. And then they get a 10% discount texted to them. From that point, they're opted in uh, to the drip. And then we can start, you know, sending more offers, showing them more menu items. But this tool is great. It gives us a lot of flexibility, gives us a lot of functionality. Mm. What about what can you do differently or maybe better through text than email? Like what, what makes texting better than email in your in your eyes? Uh text is just better in terms of open open rates because you know people are gonna get that message. So many people are used to spam email and they have, you know, they'll enter a spam email account for you know for their orders because they don't want to receive that communication. With text, it's immediate. And the cool thing too about Emotive, it allows us to stay in contact with our customers so they can respond to that. And we have someone there who's waiting to respond back to them. So you have to be on top of that stuff. And I would say, you know, that has become more of a challenge is we're getting a lot of people because we're making these texts so personalized that people are responding at a high frequency to the text. So it's actually eating up a lot of time for us to respond to everyone in a timely manner. Are they like asking questions? Like, what what are some responses to a customer? Yeah, they've they've got you know they've got menu requests. Hey, I loved the you know the meatballs you had. Can you bring those back? They're asking what other options they have in the vegetarian category. What's coming up on the menu? Hey, my delivery day. I need to change it because uh, I had something come up on Sunday, stuff like that. But it's allowing us to create a relationship with our customers, which, you know, I can't, you can't underestimate the power to building those relationships. Right. So in your eyes, it's worth being, at least for now, being overwhelmed by these responses than to not have any at all. A hundred percent. Yep. Got it. Okay, so you talk about a third channel, which is the push notifications uh, via the web browser. What about this? What are some of the pros and cons of this this approach to uh, notifying or marketing to your customer? Um, so with push notifications, I mean, it, so it's really just about frequency. Some customers uh, will opt into it, and then they get they they get upset that they continue to receive those push push notifications. You just have to allow them to opt out. Um, And with the tool we're using, Push Owl, it it really uh, allows us to do a great job with that. So we haven't seen too many limitations with that either. Got it. Okay, awesome. So when you are when you are when you've been working on, on the site, so you got the push notifications. You're pushing them to to get via text or email. They have these options. Like, what are the most important pages or parts of your of your website for for getting conversions? Whether that be the first time customers or returning customers. It all. I mean, it really all comes down to the menu, um, and a lot of it, honestly, is just photography. Uh, your eyes have to you know, have a response to the way the menu items look because we're introducing a lot of new items. 
And if those items don't look great, we're not going to receive orders even if they taste great. Um, so our menu pages, you know, we've got a handful of menu pages. We've got um, our regular breakfast, lunch, and dinner menu, which is our highest converting page. But we also have build your own options where customers can pick the protein and the two sides they want for their meals. We've got family style options. We've got kids options, bulk options. So all of those pages really convert well, but it's all on the main menu page. And then the sub menu pages are where all the conversions happen. Got it. Now, I'm sure you've improved the photography over time. But what changes have you guys consciously made to improve the conversion rates by improving the photography? Place setting has been big for us. Um, the way, you know, we're very conscious about the colors on the plate, which is you wouldn't think about, but you got to have a variety of colors. So that changes the entire architecture of a dish, essentially. You know, you're putting different things in the dish to make make it so there's hints of red, so there's hints of green, garnishing. Um, those things are very important. Making sure you've got a good lighting studio is important because um, lighting is the number one key to a great photograph and making those images really pop. So for us, that has been key is just kind of building out that lighting studio and just adding in little things that add pops of color. Mm. And you have an like in-house like studio and photographers? Um, so our marketing team will take the photos. We've got it set up uh, really nicely. But yeah, we do have the, our own photo studio and our marketing team will take the photos. Got it. And has the store design been the same throughout time or have you guys also made tweaks to, to the actual layouts or to, to the different pages that you've created? Uh, we're constantly changing the makeup of the pages. Um, and originally, we didn't start on Shopify. We migrated to Shopify, and it's been really easy to use and great for us in terms of just being able to quickly make small edits, like you know, having the breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the same page, having them on different pages, testing out different ways of combining the menu. That's been really important to us. Mm. So you're basically talking about like different ways to categorize your products. How did you know to categorize products together in different meal times, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or different diet plans almost? Like how did you guys recognize that this was uh, an improvement that would help with conversions? Um, I mean, we we I mean it was all feedback from the customers. Hey, it's hard to find the family style options. It's hard to find the custom meal options. So they basically gave us all the feedback we needed and told us, I mean, in terms of diets, like the keto diet, we didn't carry until this past summer. And we got an overwhelming response from our customer base asking to have the keto menu on there. So we had to bring that on. It all comes from that customer feedback that we talked about earlier. Um, if you're creating that communication level with your customers, they're going to tell you exactly how they want the site and how they will convert. Got it. Now, since you guys have grown so quickly, I'm sure your role at the company has changed over time. Like, what do you spend your days working on these days? Um, a lot of it is strategy and then coming up with, um, you know, larger deals in terms of sales. So um, working with, you know, companies to roll out whole programs where they may be buying meals for their employees things like that. Um, we're doing a lot with charities, that kind of thing. 
But really, it comes, I'm still doing a lot of sales and I still do a lot of the day to day because I think it's important as the CEO of the company to continue to see all aspects of your business. Because it's so easy as, as a manager or CEO of a company to not understand the thought process of your team. Um, so both myself and my COO will operate in all roles at some point throughout the month. And that gives us an idea of where we need to improve. Because another challenging aspect of the business is just hiring, you know, finding great people, especially um, when unemployment rates are so low and when we have such a labor shortage when it comes to hospitality and restaurant jobs in Nashville. Um, so for us, we really need to understand how the employees can thrive and what they're going through. So we're still doing a lot of that stuff. I think it's very important um, to see where your employees are coming from. But other than that, it's mostly focusing on sales, driving engagement within the company, that kind of thing. Yeah, I've heard often about the biggest challenge that a company has when they're scaling up is the hiring process. So now that you look back on your experience with, with hiring, what are some of the early signs that, that you now recognize in a, a high performer or a hire that will, will you know, do well at the company? Uh, the number one thing, you know, I mean, it, it might so sound kind of obvious, but the number one thing we look for is attitude. It's very easy to see up front whether someone has a great attitude or not. Um, and we feel that we can train anyone to do a great job within our business as long as their attitude is phenomenal. Um, so we don't take, take that by chance. We actually bring in our candidates for test drives and allow them to see how the work is before they actually sign on and come in as an employee. And that allows us to test drive them and them to test drive us to make sure it's a good fit. That way we're not wasting our time uh, bringing someone into the company who's unhappy. Mm -hmm. So what do you focus on these days to, to, to scale to that, that next level? Um, really, it comes down to the biggest thing is just hiring and then uh, kind of scaling you know, outside of our market. So adding more and more communities within the middle Tennessee area. Um, right now we're serving about a 60 mile radius around Nashville, um, but we're, we're constantly adding uh, new cities because we're getting requests on our website from folks who are like, hey, please you know, bring your service to our city. So we're focusing on building out those communities, but really we just wanna do an amazing job here before we start thinking about scaling to a new market, for instance. Right. I mean, when you do scale to a new market, it's not just as easy as saying, hey, we now serve in this area. Like, What are some of the challenges that maybe you didn't see coming when it comes to expanding to another market? Um, I mean, so how we do it, it might be a little bit different, but we start with a pickup location. So we'll go into a market and open a pickup location. So have it delivered to a gym um, in a city that, we're, that we want to market to. And then we have the gym promote it, see how that does, and then decide whether or not the response is good enough to open it up as a city we're going to deliver to. Um, and so once we see that, if we see the response is great, then we'll open it up for delivery. But it, it isn't always that clean cut, and it's not always that easy. Um, and sometimes the cities you go to just don't work out for whatever reason. They've got other competitors in market or maybe folks aren't as interested in healthy natural options as you would hope. 
Mm, so basically keep the distribution operations as simple as possible so that you can test the market out without investing too much into it before you find out. Exactly. Awesome. So eatwellnashville.com is a website. I'll leave you this last question, which is what do you think needs to happen? What, what would you want to happen this year for you to consider this year a success? I mean, really, every day is a success for us. Um, we're very grateful to have been in business now for three years in a growing in a growing uh, market, in a growing business and growing community. So for us, it's really just getting to get up and do what we want to do every day, and that's come out and help people become healthier, um, eat better, and continue fig- to figure out new ways of driving that health and wellness. Um, so for us, it's just we're happy to to be in business doing what we're, we love, you know. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, Spencer. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Felix. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.